It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour on the AmericaOutloud.news, the talk radio network on iHeartRadio, where you will hear Voice of Freedom, the Outlaw Truth. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Army Retired Sargis Singeri, the CEO for Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, founder of United Australian Appeal, and also the host of New Paradigms with Sargis Singeri that is also broadcast on Right American Media. My guest today is uh, my returning guest, Alfred Johnson. He's a director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan for my company, the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. We wanted to have uh, Al back again to continue on our last week's discussion, uh, specifically looking at the Shanghai Corporation Organization and how it has the effects on Iran, which drives what is happening currently in the Middle East with Israel-Hamas war. I do want to remind our uh, listeners out there that American Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also hear us on our media player from any, any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best-in-class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7, now, and now also you can uh, hear us or hear them on the podcast on those same apps. Al, it's good to have you back again, buddy. It's good to be back. I appreciate you inviting me on. Al, I do want to make sure we continue our discussion from last week, and I do want to specifically look at how China is fitting into what is happening in the region, because as you both and me know, everyone out there keeps on referring to the head of the snake as being uh, Iran, but as I have said on my, the interviews I've been on, is that really the dragon uh, behind uh, the head of the snake is uh, uh, China. And China is the one that is really uh, the backbone for Iran on the international stage and the one that Iran uh, has to listen to, given the fact that they have purchased basically Iran to the tune of $432 billion as of years ago. But I wanted to have your take uh, so we can tie this together. As why is it that we're having some struggles in the region for people not understanding that this may be heading to a much more of a wider regional war and possible global war than everybody has realized. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so you know, kind of continuing on what we talked about last week, um, the factor that most people don't take into account in, in any geopolitical um, discussion with certain countries is their existing alliances. Um, and for some reason, uh, since 1995, 96, when this when this regional alliance that was at the time Shanghai Five, now Shanghai Cooperative Organization, uh, when this thing was formed, it it's very difficult to find anyone that actually discusses it or takes it into consideration when they're factoring in their analysis of uh, of other countries' relationships and outcomes. So it's quite surprising, uh, especially considering the history of uh, the common history, so to speak, of World War One. Where you know the Archduke Ferdinand, the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Ferdinand, was shot um, in a in a by a Serbian nationalist, and that created World War One. And people, well, how did that happen? Well, Russia, France, and Britain had an alliance 
uh, Austria-Hungary and Germany had an alliance and the Russians, their interest was when the Slavic population uh, and the, the Orthodox Christian groups, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Christian groups in Serbia. And so when Austria-Hungary responded to Serbian nationalism, Russia got involved and that kind of triggered this, you know, this kind of cascading um, event that then, you know, saw even the U.S. get involved. Japan was involved. Um, they were on the side of the Entente on Britain and France. And so everybody, you know, pretty much the First World War came about because um, in some part, because a lot of people didn't recognize all of these um, alliances and entanglements and how that would affect, you know, the kind of this cascading thing. So from a very small event, an assassination, we have, you know, literally millions dead four years later. Um, and the potential for that to occur again is very high. Uh, and again, because most people are not looking at the alliance that's already in set up, and it has been working since 1995, and that is the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. For those people that don't know, we'll, we'll do a quick review of it. In, in about 1995, uh, China and Russia got together and created uh, at the time what was called the Shanghai Five, and it created this axis between Russia and China, this internal line of communication, trade, technology, and security with Russia, the some of the former Soviet, um, what we call the stands, right? Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Waziristan, that sort of thing between Russia and China and had them cooperate and work together. Now, what was the charter? The charter was to combat US, uh, what they saw as US hegemony in the world, right? The, uni, the unipolar, or the unipower that was the United States at the time after the fall of the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was greatly reduced and they reached out to China and China reached out to Russia uh, to create this alliance so that they would be strong enough to be able to combat the United States in the mid-1990s and, and kind of begin to counter the U.S. moves globally. And it has grown since then to include Iran, Pakistan, uh, and the member nations and observer nations, such as, as even Saudi Arabia is looking into it. So we have to understand that if we go to, if Israel gets into a hot war with Iran through their, their kind of revolutionary overseas proxy, which is Hezbollah, that would also involve China. And China was very involved uh, to some degrees with operations that Hamas did. Uh, people forget that uh, I think Jennifer Zhang had a good piece on, she found that the, one of the Hamas leadership, the generals had actually married a, a Chinese with direct connections into Xi Jinping's office. So there's, there's kind of this, this direct line <laughs> to, to Xi Jinping. As I mentioned last week, the Assyrian president and his wife visited China for the, for the Asian games and left their children there saying, well, there's now conflict in the Middle East. They're safer here and they need to understand Chinese culture. That's a huge shift. Uh, and that we're not taking it. We're not taking account that these nations are aligned with the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. And the other thing I'd point out is that Russia, China, and to some degree, Iran have conducted uh, annual exercises, which do security exercises. They'll they'll practice counterterrorism. They practice uh, various military exercises, these large scale military exercises have been ongoing with Russia, China, and then the other nations participating. And there has, there's already a framework in place between Iran, Russia, and China. So a war with Iran would bring in Russia and China. And I would remind people that during this escalation in the Middle East, the, the Russian President uh, Putin said that he made, made a public statement uh, that the, the U.S. ships in the Black Sea are within range of uh, Russian missiles. And then he ordered his, uh, the aircraft, uh, according to open source intelligence reports, he ordered his aircraft to maintain visual presence or visual sighting of any U.S. assets in that area. So we have to understand that this seems like it's focused on Israel. It seems like it's focused on Gaza, but very quickly it can escalate to a global war uh, very, very, very rapidly. And the, the, the framework is already there. People aren't going to kind of stumble into it. 
the the alliances are already set and they've already been training together, working together, sharing assets, sharing information, intelligence, and that sort of thing. The, the Chinese have been in Syria, as you know, uh, along with the Russians. So they have experience in the Middle East. They have a base in Djibouti in Africa. So this this is not China extending you know, very far beyond. They've been active overseas since about the mid-90s and really in earnest uh, since about the mid-2000s. No, definitely. And you and me have been looking at this. Um, I know we were on stage uh, with Michael Yon in uh, uh, February of 20, uh, uh, 2015, and we're looking at what was happening on the ground. Um, of course, um, I was there talking to the Japanese about ISIS cells that were operating uh, within uh, Japan itself. Uh, but um, we definitely were briefing about what China's doing and what China's goals are. And uh uh, when I was there, um, and I could talk about it because I don't have any type of a uh, non-disclosure uh, agreement with the uh, Ministry of Interior in Japan, but I told them, look, China's looking at uh, right now um, possibly uh, trying to modernize their military. Uh, my recommendation was at that time for the uh, uh, Prime Minister of Japan to fly in uh, directly, Abe, uh, unfortunately, who was assassinated into uh, China and uh, unannounced and say, we'll help you modernize your military. If China said no, at least everybody would know that China is a loser. It would cause internal issues for uh, China itself. Everybody would know what their aims are. And if they said yes, guess what? Then you have basically uh, the backdoor to all their uh, frames that they're looking at for their uh, modern uh, military in the future. And uh, it gives you leverage as China tries to expand. And that was in 2015. And I don't believe that um, even the ambassador that we had uh, from the U.S. at that time had the ability to even pass on information like that because nobody was really looking at what China tried to do with the SEO framework. But we had also, you and me, looked at this long before. Um, and uh, I know you mentioned Jeff Jennifer Zhang. And this is the second time you mentioned her last week, too. But for those who don't know who she is, she's actually a director of China's governmental and societal affairs, also for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. And she has her own uh, podcast that she does uh, on a YouTube channel. Uh, and I think it's wonderful as far as information that she's able to to provide. So if you all get a chance, uh, definitely take a look at her material. Again, this Jennifer Zhang with G-E-N-G at the end of it or you could go to the near east site and be able to download some information on her but uh look um, we are where we are today and i i think for folks even looking at it from a tactical perspective uh you know i know we've sent two uh task forces uh into the med but we have also sent one into the gulf uh, which nobody's paying attention to and frankly from the u.s military side if you're gonna clear airspace as a our air force commanders probably would know and i know that uh, some of our generals on the um uh on this particular uh channel would understand is that uh, when we say clear a corridor you're clearing a large piece of space uh, for our aircrafts, hopefully in the future, if they need to, to go in and hit the Hezbollah positions. Well, that clearing operation has to sweep a corridor that you have China flying in, you have Russians flying in, and the Turks. So at any given time, anything can happen. If you could start a world war based on an assassination that takes place, not understanding the intricacies of these um, uh, countries being linked together through treaties, then uh, imagine 
when a young lieutenant now has a split second to make a decision if he has to shoot down something that he's locked on on as they're clearing these corridors, and it may be Russian, Chinese, or Turkish. And then it becomes a much more of an issue that we have to deal with. Uh, Iran does give uh, China a footprint into the Middle East. And as you, you remember when we were talking, when the explosions took place in the uh, port in Beirut, uh, a lot of the reason why the explosion was as heavy as it was because there were uh, uh, Chinese uh, fuel that is needed for missiles to be launched by Hezbollah uh, that had made it there through uh, Africa, basically, um, into uh, the Sinai and somehow managed to make it into uh, Gaza, Hamas's hands, and then uh, uh, make it into the uh, Palestinian Authority's hands and end up uh, into Hezbollah hands. So these are the pieces that I think a lot of people don't understand that uh, these nations and what is happening right now between Israel and Hamas is much more than just an internal fight between the two nations uh, that could maybe in the future cause Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, you know, political future, even if he wins. But uh, uh, it is where we are today. Uh, Al, what is the best estimate from your perspective as far as what do you think may happen with the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization and China's possibility of supporting Iran if anything happens in the region that brings them into the fight? Would that, would that be a best case scenario for from our perspective in the U.S. or the best case scenario for the Chinese perspective? No, it would be the best case scenario from the Chinese perspective. Uh, ah, and for the China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for the Chinese perspective, the best case scenario is that, that it actually the U.S. would become bogged down in the Middle East. So we, we commit, you know, we've already got one uh, strike group in there that we have to commit another one that we get land forces in there. And the U.S. becomes hyper focused on the Middle East. As you notice, the the events in, you, in the Middle East have already almost memory hold Ukraine. Nobody's talking about Ukraine anymore, right? <laughs> so, you know, so in other words, Ukraine, you know, competing for funding, support and help uh, is is difficult now because the popular you know opinion, the popular mood in the United States is now hyper focused on the Middle East and on Israel. And so the U.S. can only do so much. Uh, we're not the nation that we were in 1930. We don't have that capacity that we did you know, when we fought World War II. We haven't planned, even as far as I know, we haven't planned as long as we did uh, for that war, for this war, like we did for World War II. And so the ability for us to maintain multi-front operations, I feel, is extremely limited. And if we are engaged in the Middle East, China will go for the golden ticket, which is Taiwan and the Straits of Malacca. And then they will also push out to Okinawa. That nine-dash line will become you know, permanent. And they will move into islands, you know, within the, which the Philippine Islands, basically, that will take those lands. Basically, that the, the the area in the Pacific will now be the gateway for the Chinese. They will be they will be on the threshold of the Pacific, and they will be able to move freely into the Pacific without choke points. They will grab those choke points and allow their fleet to go right into the Pacific and the resources that go along with it and the power shift, because all those little nations that are within the ASEAN framework that are even Japan, even South Korea, uh, Austria, New Zealand even, will now have a new boss in town. A new sheriff will be on the high seas, and that's going to be China. They will get Taiwan. Now, as you talked earlier, remember you had uh, Moe Fukada and Jason Ho on, I believe it was two years ago. The criticality of Taiwan cannot be understated. 
the the ability of most of our systems, which rely on silicon chips, it being forged in Taiwan. TMSE makes most of the chips uh, and a lot of the chips for our security and defense needs are are forged there. If that goes into Chinese hands, we don't have we we reduced capacity to be able to maintain our weapon systems. And we are reliant on high tech. We have made that decision over the last, you know, 70, 80 years that our military is going to be have the advantage over all other adversaries because of a technical advantage, right? Technical and tactical advantage, but mostly technical that we want to we want to be able to have a high tech solution to maximize our firepower and to maximize the effectiveness of the firepower that we bring to bear against the enemies. And if that ability to be able to maintain, replace and repair uh, that the high tech systems that we use is gone, what are we going to do? We don't have the ability to be able to build up a force within 10 years that now relies upon manpower, <laughs> right? And, and, and low tech systems. It's, and we can't build the infrastructure here. It's not, it's not easy to build uh, very rapidly the uh, silicon producing factory in the United States. So we are in a very bad position. China is in a very good position in some respects. Now they have internal problems if that if those reports are to be believed, and it's not propaganda that they put out a smokescreen. They have internal problems, but that makes them more unstable. That makes the ability of a foreign adventure more appealing to uh, the leadership within China because they want to keep their they want to keep their seats in power. So if the natives are if the, if the citizens are restless, they go overseas, uh, and Taiwan is is the golden ticket. For China, if they grab it, we're in trouble. And this is the emotional part. I want to I want to say this to the audience, and it'll probably get a lot of heat. But you know, Ricky, I'm Jewish in the background, so it's like you know, give me a break. We have emotional um, pulls, and we have to remove the emotion from the analytic equation. And right now, the emotion is we have to protect Israel. But if it's a choice between Israel and the Middle East and Taiwan, realistically, geostrategically. And where our supply lines are, we would have to choose, if we had to choose one, you would have to choose Taiwan, not on an emotional basis, but on a realistic basis. And so if we get involved in the Middle East and are unable to defend Taiwan, we lose the war. We win the emotional battle, but we've lost the war because we will, we will have lost not just Taiwan, but remember the Straits of Malacca, 80% of world trade goes through those Straits. Most of our imports in some way in world trade go through that. If it's now controlled by China, that's a big problem. And that's what we have to be ready for. And in our measured response, we have to not get caught up in this, in, in the, the, the quagmire that might become the Middle East and would trigger a global conf conflagration because then China would have Cassus Belli. Like you said, if, if a split second decision in the Middle East hits a Chinese asset, China has Cassus Belli, we shot first, right? The US shot first, therefore China, all bets are off and China is justified in what they do. And then they go into and attack Taiwan. And then we're checkmated at that point. So we have to be very careful of that. And I would say there's a historical precedent going back to World War One. And I, I want to point this let's, out. Let's do this. I, I do okay. want to cover that. But let me uh, let's come back to that discussion. I do uh, I want to take a quick break here and then we'll come back. And uh, I do want to, uh, you know, uh, discuss some of the items that you brought up. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. 
Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back to the National Security Hour. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Gear, U.S. Army Retired. My guest is uh, Alfred Johnson, who's the Director of Research for Southeast Asia and Japan uh, for the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. We are talking today about the issues of the region and what is happening in the Middle East. And specifically, uh, the biggest piece uh, that is, uh, from our perspective, that people are not looking at is the issues of the Shanghai Corporation Organization or Shanghai Cooperative Organization, as some call it. Uh, but um, I do remember that when we had initially talked, looking at where China was going to expand. And fast forward to when uh, Michael Young and me actually met with the uh, uh, resistance groups out of Burma. Uh, I came back and gave a um, um, white paper to the National Security Council in uh, January of 2018. And it was looking at uh, a geostrategic location and wanted the desire for China to go in to be able to control the shipping lanes that the United States uh, has now under its control, which has given the U.S. an ability to be as strong as it is at the global level with leverage against China and Russia uh, and other nations. Uh, so when I was there during the uh, 17th to 23rd January 2018 visit in northern and southern Thailand at that time, portion of uh, what I spent my time when I was looking at the regional uh, strategic assessment there, I looked into the uh, uh, causes and of the crisis uh, that had in the past uh, alone uh, almost led to 65,000 people being forced from their homes and almost 6,000 killed. And we were looking specifically at is what was happening in Burma. And uh, then come to realize that uh, at that time, General Halang and the Burmese army uh, were behind what's happening in the Arakan region, which is a remote and uh, impoverished region in the far west of the country. And then China held the answer there because Arakan was the home of the largest Chinese uh, expansionism project within the region. And this was a Chinese government consortium known as uh, CITIC, or the China International Trust Investment Corporation, which at that time was uh, basically streamrolling a um, $14 billion project into the region that was centered on a couple of towns there to build a deep water port 
for his oil exports. And of course, in there was the Strait of Malacca that uh, you mentioned, Al, going back uh, in our last segment. Uh, for our folks to understand that uh, the fight that is taking place today uh, is significant because China's economy, as it's looking at today, failing, falling, is still uh, dependent on oil out of the region. And if this gets pushed to a point where you have now embargoes being sent in by the Arab League and fights taking place where uh, possibly as even some uh, American uh, congressmen and senators have said, you need to go ahead and target the Iranian oil platforms, you have now put China in a position that you have given it no other opportunity or way out for its old survival to really get into Taiwan to take the chip uh, technology that we have to use as a leverage to reset the uh, stage for his benefit. So it seems that we're actually going towards war more because of the needs of the folks currently in the administration here or in the Middle East or in Asia than uh, we were trying to avoid it under the previous uh, administration. Just want to make sure that our audiences was aware of why we have referenced the Strait of Malacca. And then I give you the uh, floor, Al, to kind of try to tie this in together uh, for the larger picture uh, of the worst case scenario being executed. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. And going back to, um, you know, Burma that you mentioned before with General Hyang and the Arakan region. So they needed that deep water port and then the oil pipeline to go up into uh, China so that they didn't have to transit their ships past that Strait of Malacca. They could they have that internal line of communication. They're shortening their lines of supply. And they've also done similar projects with ethnic cleansing also. So they were basically, they were ethnic cleansing the Rohingyas in there using their puppet General Hyang of Burma to ethnically cleanse Rohingya. And that created a refugee problem for Thailand, where we had a number of Rohingya now that were crossing the border that were you know, moving into the south and the south of Thailand had its own issues with a, with a Muslim insurgency or radical Islamic insurgency in, in those three provinces. So it had this kind of cascading effect in the region. And who won? Well, China wins. So it additionally destabilized the, the south of, of Thailand, forcing more assets onto them. They had to focus on the south. The international community only focused on the Rohingya refugee problem and China wins. They still got their deep water port. They ethnically cleansed the area and General Hwang, you know, got his pockets lined and they had a stronger presence and control group in Burma and because they had depopulated the Rohingya and were able to repopulate it with their folks. The same happened in Sudan. There's North and South Sudan. The Chinese in the port of Sudan uh, wanted the, the oil pipeline to go through that kind of that Blue Nile area and that sort of thing. They did the same uh, issues where they actually used one group against another to create this uh, ethnic violence or in this case it was religion because it was the the northern islamos against the southern christians in sudan and that was the conflict and they wanted to depopulate that area where they needed this line of supply to go to the port uh the port of sudan to be able to move that through so they have this in their playbook uh, and this is a very old tactic and so they they can take that to the next level and are we seeing something similar within you know, the Middle East now where they're using this and, and where are these refugees going to go? We talked about this last week, but I think I need to bring it up again this week is that you have 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. Where are they going to go? Israel is saying they want to clear this area out. They want to remove all the Palestinians. Well, no Middle East nation is going to take it. Israel's not going to take them. Where are the Palestinians going to go? 
And the fear is, of course, that they are going to come here. There are, uh, the U.S. is actually, uh, Michael Yon is down there in Panama right now at the Darien Gap. There are three camps being built. One large one was being built. Mayorkas actually visited it and the U.S. put more funding into it. It's a much larger camp, has a huge, huge flow through there. There's two other camps being built right now that will facilitate the flow. The Chinese are building a bridge. Uh, there's a, the highway is getting expanded. So you can actually now, instead of crossing this, this dangerous filter, which is known as the Darien Jungle, the Darien Gap, uh, which could, which actually takes you know a lot of effort and energy to go through, and a lot of people don't make it. They are now making these camps. They are now facilitating a much more uh, much more of a volume of refugees that can now come straight up through into America. And do we want two million, one million, or even five hundred thousand Palestinians unvetted here that are coming from this conflict that have an axe to grind against Israel and, as they see it, the Jews? And so they'll attack American Jews. And they see evangelical Christians as supporting Jews. They see as America as the puppet master for Israel. That's how a lot of Palestinians see it. And they will fall into groups here that are already anti-government forces. And they will be a very serious internal security problem. And that is, to me, that's the worst case scenario. And then again, we are focused more internally. We'll be focused in the Middle East. We're focused on Ukraine. What is left to guard and protect the real prize, which is Taiwan, which we need to... Uh, be able to function in our modern society. Where is that? <laughs> and that's the problem. That is kind of the worst case scenario. And, and again, it's it's we kind of look like Austro-Hungary at this point, right? So Austro-Hungary, you know, got got hit. The Archduke Ferdinand was was hit under international law. They were assassinated. They had the right to kind of go in and, and prosecute the criminals that did this, or the the nationalists, the Serbian nationalists, ultra nationalists that did it. And yet, world opinion quickly turned against them. The U.S. needs to recognize we're almost in that same position. Yes, it may be justified to go in, but very quickly world opinion can shift and it can shift against the United States. It can even shift against Israel, depending on how the conduct of the war goes on. And so at the beginning of, of the Austro-Hungarian moves against Serbia, most people supported them. The British press was for them, but almost overnight it quickly shifted. And so it became a bad issue that the press flipped against Austro-Hungary, said, you're not justified. Russia said we're going in, and that just set the cascade of events in motion. And that same mechanism, that organizational structure is still here today, and it's even more so in the form of the SCO because they have been working together. They have been doing drills together. They have been sharing information. Uh, China has been doing operations in the Middle East and globally. I mean, they're down in Panama, they've, they've Panama Canal. They've got uh, operatives on all sides of the Panama Canal. Uh, there's another person we can't really talk about that should be coming out shortly, in the, in the Central and South American region, there is a huge Chinese presence and increasingly growing presence of, of folks from the Middle East and from North Africa that are moving into that area and then can move up here. We have the Panama Canal there. That's vulnerable. So we have a lot of vulnerabilities. We're not focused on it. Uh, we're distracted. We're stretched in. And we need to be aware of that fact as we go forward and, and check our emotions to make sure that we maintain our integrity. We maintain what's critical for us. And we don't let our emotions get the best of us uh, that may draw us into a trap. Well, it's not just that. I mean, uh, nations are setting themselves up. Uh, look, when you look at World War II and the American response to what happened with Japan attacking us, there were stages of what America kind of saw coming. Now, some will say that, you know, Japan was baited into it. Others will say, no, Japan just did it. 
and we had no choice but to keep on giving him uh, new red lines. And then finally, of course, the final one was with the uh, attack that they conducted against us because they didn't like, uh, you know, the answer we gave them when it came down to uh, what their abilities were. But prior, uh, and I I want you to talk about that a little bit, uh, um, Al, but prior to that taking place, we were starting to set up our internal mechanisms at our factories, possibly looking at the possibility of a war coming. There's nothing that has been at the magnitude of what we were able to set and how many factories we had already online prior to the attack in Pearl Harbor that I can see about us being able to have our uh, you know, uh, system set to where we can counter at least a possible takeover of all the chip technologies that China will do once they get into Taiwan. Am I missing something? Um, are we at that platform? Have we at least prepared to an extent to counter what could happen if China goes in? No, you're exactly right. And, and to let people know, uh, because most Americans, almost all Americans I know, don't know this this fact. Most Most people in the world don't know the fact. The United States had long planned for an engagement in the Pacific against Japan. The war plans were created in 1908. They were updated 11 times. We had full-scale exercises. I mean, the entire fleet, every single year, some years were multiple exercises, lasting a couple of months between 1923 and 1940. 1940 was a little reduced because we had operational assets that had to move into the Atlantic. But this was a full-scale exercise. And then during 1930s, there was the buildup. So in 1930, there was only roughly you know six or seven private shipyards that could make warships, uh, that increased to all, over 100 by the time 1941 hit. So we had we were expanding our industrial capacity. The military planners that worked, both the Army and the Navy, looked at the industrial capacity of the United States to be able to engage in war plan arts, to be able to engage in this. And it was validated by yearly exercises, all hands on deck. Sometimes the Army was involved, the Army Air Corps was involved, the Marines were definitely involved. And this was training to the plan with non-notional massive exercises to figure out the equipment we needed, what worked, what didn't work, what we have to project in to build the next 10, 20 years. And that was ongoing. And the industrial sector was very much involved with army planners, such as General, later General Wiedemeyer and Eisenhower, who looked at the industrial capacity based on the plans and said, this is what we need. And then working with a whole of government approach to get the industrial capacity ramped up prior to the war to be able prior to Pearl Harbor, all this occurred before Pearl Harbor to get us ready to engage and, and be able to to fight two fronts effectively. And that was 1935. They started working on that two front war, Japan, Germany simultaneously and, and the industrial needs for that two front war. And we did it so well that we were able to support allies like Britain and Russia in being able to fight, uh, you know, in their operations that they needed. In addition to our own army, we were equipping other armies. That's how good we are. We haven't done that. And worse, we've offshored all of our capacity. You know, thanks to people like, uh, you know, with the ilk of um, <laughs> Bain Capital and those guys, Mitt Romney and others, all of our, our, our materials, almost everything we need is offshore. Critical semiconductors you know, are now in Taiwan. Where is our large capacity? If we, needed to, if we needed to just do World War II again, like let's just recreate World War II with building of, of Fletcher class destroyers and that sort of thing, we couldn't do it. We don't have the capacity right now to even do World War II, and we had trained and done it. We don't have that now, and that's the problem. We've offshored everything. We don't have the capacity, and we are, we are I hate to say it, but it's kind of this hubris that, uh, that we have as Americans that we believe that Pearl Harbor, we were able to mobilize right after Pearl Harbor and win a two-front war. No, 
that was a war long planned for, long trained for. And even then it took us, you know, four and a half, five years to be able to conduct that. And it took a lot of lives and a lot of blood, sweat and tears, but we did it. We haven't trained for it now. We think we can just get sucker punched and we're going to come back swinging and fighting. We haven't fought a war to scale, a world war since World War II. Again, planned since 1908, trained on extensively since 1923. And the two-front war was planned in industrial capacity in 1935. That's well before Pearl Harbor. We don't have that now. And that's dangerous because we believe in our minds emotionally that we can get sucker punched and we'll come back and we can beat two enemies at the same time. We don't know what it takes to win a war anymore. And that frightens me. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, even with all that planning, everything you just laid out, it still took uh, copper bombing uh, Dresden, burning uh, as many Germans uh, into crisp and also dropping two nuclear bombs on Japan just to be able to uh, get to a victory uh, with resetting the stage. And uh, this time is going to be uglier because uh, right now, we're no longer at a capacity where nation states control some of the uh, uh, capabilities, but you have outside actors that can control capabilities that can defeat nations. Um, I mean, Elon Musk can literally has more satellites than most countries do. And he could either use them to be able to bring uh, capability and capacity to support uh, foreign countries, or he could shut it off tomorrow and not support. And uh, the same uh, goes for others that are out there that have the abilities that nation states don't, uh, which is one of the reasons even some of our allies out there have uh, worked with us in the past uh, to counter China. But at the same time, um, as India has helped us to counter China, they have helped uh, basically save the uh, Russian economy and prop it up uh, to where it's starting to recover. Uh, based on how they've supported it, especially with the purchase of oil and other requirements and uh, supporting with uh, the weapons they need to be able to fight this fight. With that said, I want to remind our audiences that are my shows uh, go to podcast typically one or two days after the broadcast is heard on talk radio. You can also hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcasts, and many more. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. And also be sure to make American Out Loud or AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, our articles, the videos so that uh, we can help secure America's future. Uh, Al, we're going to take a short break, come back, and uh, we're going to try to discuss where are we going to be able to, given where we are today, to project uh, our abilities to where the United States uh, can at least keep its head above the water um, if everything goes haywire in the uh, Middle East. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. 
Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Welcome back again to the National Security Hour. I'm your host again, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sorgerson Gary, host of uh, this particular podcast and also the host of New Paradigms with Sorgerson Gary, which uh, airs on Mondays and also re-airs on the Right American Media every Wednesday. Uh, I'm here talking to uh, my friend and uh, colleague, uh, Al Johnson. Um, Al is uh, part of the uh, Neary Center for Strategic Engagement Team. And uh, he is the uh, director of research for Southeast Asia and Japan. Um, Al, I do want to take a look at exactly how uh, China has been able to maneuver its footprint, especially in the region. With what is happening between Israel and Hamas, China, of course, came out in support of the Palestinians. Um, initially, as far as uh, Hamas operations are concerned, where it didn't uh, say that, uh, you know, um, it uh, was behind in support of the Hamas operations against Israel, but was uh, understanding from their perspective as to why Hamas had conducted the so-called operations. We all know that uh, the same uh, China is uh, killing the Muslims uh, within his own borders and ethnically cleansing them out. The uh, Islamic nations and Arab nations have been basically uh, silenced on what was happening internally to their uh, Islamic brethren in China as they were being eradicated. But uh, uh, we also do know that uh, China's stand, as big and powerful it may be, it still has to be aware that it's surrounded by Islamic nations. And if at any given time the Islamic nations turn and try to support their brethren that are being killed inside of China, it would be a very ugly day internally for China and especially for the uh, Chinese Communist Party trying to protect itself uh, going uh, forward over the next uh, uh, half a uh, decade rather than a half a century. Uh, Also, at the same time, some of the other nations, in this case like Turkey, which has uh, played good guy and bad guy in the past, uh, depending on what it can uh, do to support itself and sustain itself, um, it has reached out to these nations like Turkey, that's a NATO ally, but Turkey by itself has uh, confirmed the one China policy and has recognized the PRC as a sole legal representative of China. So where are we with trying to 
see what the possibilities are with the United States, at least under the current administration for now where the fight is taking place or a future possible change that we can maybe squeeze and flip some of our own allies back on our side and maybe get China to abide by the possibility of a stronger stand with our only ally in the Middle East, in this case, Israel? Well, that's a tough question because the first part would have to be the United States uh, inside ourselves would have to get aligned against China. Uh, As you know, the the current administration is filled with West Exec, what I call West Exec alumni, which worked for a company called West Exec that was formed in 2017 as kind of a transitional shadow government when Hillary didn't get elected. They, they basically her administrative staff created West Exec. And during the time between 2017 and then when Biden came to office, they the West Exec team was involved in bypassing the moral sanctions against China. They were involved in getting Americans to bypass sanctions to sell products and to become economically intertangled with China. So the first step in this whole thing would have to be America has to focus on the threat, which is China. Uh, the SEO and understand the SEO framework. That's the first step is awareness of of the danger. If you're walking in a jungle and there are tigers around you, the first step to anything is, you know, don't worry about the alliances between those two tigers or if that tiger and that lion is going to be aligned. You have to recognize you're in a jungle and you have to recognize the tigers of the enemy, right? <laughs> you have to recognize the danger that you're in. And that's the first step that I think America needs to do is to recognize the danger that we're in. There are some measures that have come out domestically, a few things with State Department, that they're, they're almost, I hate to use the word placebo, but they're kind of a placebo against China. That's not meaningful. They're not, they're not real effective measures to be able to counter the, the Chinese militant expansionism and the influence operations that are here in our own soil. So that's the first step. The second step, as you said, like with Turkey, Turkey's a wild card. Turkey is NATO, and a lot of Americans will take it for granted. Well, Turkey's, that's in our column. They can flip sides. Uh, Turkey's kind of like the Italy I hate to say it, but it's kind of like the Italy, the modern Italy, uh, whereas Italy was actually on the side of Germany and Austria-Hungary by treaty in World War I. And months into the war, they suddenly flipped sides over to the Entente. <laughs> so, you know, that so Austria, Austria-Hungary and, and Germany were counting on Italy to be on their side. They were by treaty on their side. They tore up the treaty during the middle of a war and said, OK, we're going to join the Entente with France and Britain and go to war against Austria-Hungary. So you have to realize that even though they're on your side now, once the fighting starts and once, you know, the, the fates of nations and peoples comes into balance, people will flip sides. And do you have enough uh, to offer that nation to keep them in your column? And that's something we need to look at. What do we have that would keep Turkey on our side? What do we have that would keep Saudi Arabia on our side? Remember, uh, China was involved in being able to kind of bridge the gaps in, in the, the conflict in Yemen to, to bring some ceasefires there with Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Iran, something that, that you know, was very difficult to do. They were involved in that process. So we have to look at those things and realize, you know, who's really a strong ally and why are they an ally? And under wartime conditions, will that change? Will someone flip sides because they're going to get a better deal from the other side? What does China offer? And that's what we need to look at. And, and that's the first step. The second step is Honestly, recognizing where the SEO, what the SEO framework is and where the connections are. And then what are the advances of China? When most people think of Djibouti, the Horn of Africa, they don't think Chinese bases. When they think of Syria, they don't think of Chinese involvement. When they think of Sudan, they don't think of Chinese involvement. And yet China is involved there. Uh, They are involved in Central and South America. They are involved in uh, in a large degree in domestic, even in domestic U.S. uh, 
areas. So we have to be very cognizant of what their capability actually is and where their reach is to be able to do it. And then we have to be able to counter that. So even, for example, if we can counter China, if Iran, who is China's partner, can get a good deal with Turkey, right? So Iran and Turkey, you know, come to an agreement and Iran offers Turkey, okay, we're going to cede this, you know, historical fight to you or this land or this area that we were contesting. That's gone out the table. We're going to work a deal. Do we have something to be able to counter that? Because Iran, anybody in that SEO framework can begin to work deals with other countries to bring them into their side and their column. So we have to be very cognizant of that fact. If I can um, hear, uh, Al, because Turkey is very important for people to understand, because keep in mind that, um, you know, most of our sensitive uh, assets we have sit on Turkish bases with their protection. But keep in mind what happened during the last war, right? When we were initially invading um, uh, into Iraq and how much of a headache Turkey gave us just being able to use their, uh, you know, their their basing and also their um, uh, air in order to be able to get in and conduct our operations against the Iraqi government. Um, uh, Turkey now has um, almost 20 bases inside of uh, Iraq itself. Iraq, we like to believe, is American property. I don't think it is any longer, um, uh, given the fact that Turkey is there. And Turkey's uh, wants and desires are to be able to go in there and squeeze the uh, Kurds who, on our belief, they belong to us, uh, given the opera- operations we've done in the past with them. But uh, if Turkey doesn't want them and wants to address the issue with them and they have basings there and uh, are uh, physically inside of Iraq itself, and to include Iran being inside of Iraq, don't count on Iraq to be on your side if something completely goes haywire with the possibility of this ground war into um, uh, Gaza by the uh, Israelis. And by the way, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. Where do you think Saudi is going to be standing on? Is it going to be standing against uh, uh, Turkey, against Iran, against China, in support of um, uh, the Abraham Accords uh, with the United States, that it doesn't believe that the current administration is going to do anything to help it? Or is it going to stand on the other side? So uh, even our allies within the region. Uh, and I go back to the first JCPOA that we initially struck. And I told everyone when I was uh, asked about it, I said, the JCPOA is more of an economic uh, agreement than it is a, a agreement on security issues. And the United States, under Obama, really struck that deal to save Europe from an economic collapse and the fact that they always wanted to have access to the pieces of property in Iran. Keep in mind, as soon as that JCPOA was signed, the first uh, group that went in to meet with the Iranians were the uh, American oil companies, followed by Europeans and other companies. But I always give the example where one of the British companies went in and uh, they knew that they were going to have a meeting with the Iranian businessmen and the Iranian businessmen wanted to work more with the American businesses rather than the European and British businesses. And what did they do? They basically paid cash to protesters to protest a debt to America outside of the building that they were meeting. In this case, bought off Iranians to protest uh, in front of the uh, uh, building that they were meeting with the Iranian businessmen and said, look, your own people are against the uh, United States. Why don't you have those American companies come through us rather than 
us having to go through the American companies to work with you. And this is your ally. This is one of the strongest allies you have. And if you can't trust your allies in Europe and NATO, it is more likely that you're going to have to basically not trust that anybody in the Middle East who recently basically didn't even meet with the Americans. However, the Brits were able to meet with the same uh, leadership that the American president wasn't able to meet with, who was snubbed, uh, in order to be able to support you in a larger battle uh, when it comes to your global efforts of how you want to counter China that you have been doing business with for all these years. Exactly right. And that's what people need to realize is that nations in time of crisis and even not in time of crisis will act in their own interests. Uh, and then even within nations, depending on the strength of an oligarch group, that oligarch group will actually act in its own interest and will subvert the national interest to that, you know, kind of that ruling clique interest. And so a more realistic view of our allies and their dynamics, their power dynamics. You know, does the, does the government actually run that country or is the oligarch group kind of sharing power and influencing how that goes? And are they going to get a better deal from the other side? So we need to really, really look at every group will operate in its own interests and a more realistic, uh, real politics, so to speak, in, in how we view these things is very important, especially in the coming weeks and months. How can we address the changing of the paradigms in people's heads to be able to at least have a possibility that we won't see multiple major wars and world wars in the next generation? Well, I, I have to side with you know Machiavelli on this one, is that there is always going to be war. That's just part of being a human being is you're going to run into conflict. And groups of human beings will always go into conflict with other groups of human beings. Nothing will change that. You have to mitigate that as much as possible. And you have to be able, and it's hard to do, like you said, with nuclear weapons, that ups the ante. Uh, with modern warfare, with industrial warfare, that up the ante even more. So looking at kind of this evolution of warfare and understanding that there will always be conflict, the last you know 70 years has been kind of a managed uh, low intensity conflict. And so there was all these little boiler or kind of steam valves that were going on with small, small wars, brush wars, proxy wars that was designed to kind of alleviate uh, kind of that pressure for conflict without going nuclear. In today's environment, that might be tougher. As far as Iran, I would point out two factors. Number one, two, two nations have really supported the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, sadly, one is kind of the Americans, right? In other words, we allowed um, the ability for Iran to do that. And that was Susan Rice and, and her kind of program, you know, a little over 10 years ago. And that's kind of been continued now that we weren't very serious about stopping Iran's capability from developing nuclear capability. And so we have we have some blame in that on our side. The other is, of course, China. Remember, they're partners. And the second part is, is, of course, North Korea has nukes. China facilitated, of course, North Korea. China facilitates uh, the, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And that's one thing that we don't do. We have to call out China when they proliferate nuclear technology or they proliferate uh, some weapons of mass destruction capability to be transferred to another country. We need to call that out. The problem is, is that we are so entangled economically with China, we don't do that. We're, we have kit gloves when it comes to China because corporations and oligarchs over here make a lot of money in Beijing. That's a big problem. We have to disentangle ourselves economically from China. We have to get off the slave labor state model where we use China as a slave labor state for you know cheap products and, and massive investments <laughs> that make wild profits. We have to get rid of that because otherwise we'll never be able to, to do the effective measures to contain it and to stop this kind of aggression and, and nuclear proliferation. The other part is is I, I would be very hesitant for any 
intelligence assessment that's coming out publicly about what the weapons capability of Iran is. Why? We were shocked by Iran and Pakistan suddenly having nukes. Remember, they both have nukes. <laughs> this was something no one thought, especially Pakistan. They didn't think that was within their capability. So very rapidly, they had nuclear capability. Very rapidly, Iran can get nuclear capability, even either in-house or transferred by the SEO partners. That would be China and potentially Russia. But I would, I would lean more toward China being able to proliferate it, same as they did in North Korea. So we have to be very... Um, cautious about the potential that Iran either already has nukes or very quickly and very rapidly, especially in a, in a destabilized environment, could gain access to utilize nukes um, and that sort of thing. Or even through a proxy through, you know, is, is, is Pakistan going to throw its weight in there and help out Iran in some place, you know, because of these, these different uh, alliances, we don't know. And that's something we do need to take into consideration. No, we do need to take it into consideration and um, hopefully, um, the decision makers have us on the right path. Unfortunately, as we both kind of sense it, I think we're in trouble. And um, the today's events in the Middle East are not helping to address those issues. Al, I do want to thank you for coming here and uh, sharing your uh, thoughts with us. Um, uh, it is always wonderful having these discussions, and hopefully our discussions do help uh, enlighten our viewers a little bit more as to the intricacies of what is happening with the uh, with how the nations of the world have entangled themselves in this uh, web that they cannot even seem to be able to get out of. So maybe they're looking for a new world order. What that is going to entail, who knows, because we're not the uh, decision makers, but it will entail war. We know that. Um, I want to remind our audiences that you can find out more about my show and get all the uh, latest podcasts if you go to the menu navigation bar at americaoutloud.com under the uh, our show or schedule. You will then be in the know. Uh, also, uh, I want to thank uh, Al and all our audiences for joining us on uh, the mission. The National Security Hour is a tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. 